What's up, everyone? I'm Joe Pompliano, and this is The Joe Pomp Show. Today's episode is with Mike Tannenbaum. Mike Tannenbaum has been around the NFL for more than 25 years, serving as general manager of the New York Jets from 2006 to 2012. We discuss what it takes to become an NFL GM, how analytics has changed football, why hard work always beats talent, the future of sports media, and more. I really enjoyed this conversation with Mike, and I hope that you do too. But before we get into it, let's quickly run through today's sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Whoop. Whoop is a 24-7 personalized fitness wearable that's here to help you improve your recovery, sleep, fitness, and health. It's the one tech product that I wear 24-7. Here's how it works. Each day when you get up, Whoop gives you a recovery score based on your sleep, resting heart rate, respiratory rate, and heart rate variability. Your score lets you know how to approach your day, whether you should push yourself during your workout or activity, or if you should skip the gym and take a rest day. You wear your Whoop on your wrist, bicep, or now within one of their new smart clothing garments called Whoop Body. The band connects with an app on your phone, and it automatically measures your heart rate, calories, and activity levels throughout the day. The band also automatically detects and classifies your workouts, so there's never an issue in forgetting to press go on a run anymore. You can then analyze your activity levels in the app. There's also a ton of coaching features within it like Strain Coach, which gives you target workout exertion goals tailored to your body's recovery level for that day. Those goals change over the course of the day, depending on how active you've been. That coaching is where Whoop really shines. Whether you're interested in how CBD or alcohol impacts your sleep and recovery, or you're just wondering how long of a run you should go on, Whoop is there to provide you with personalized data to make sure you're aware of the impact these decisions have on your body. And Whoop is now offering 15% off their new Whoop 4.0 right now with the code Joe at checkout. Go to Whoop, W-H-O-O-P dot com and enter Joe, J-O-E, at checkout to save 15%. Sleep better, recover faster, train smarter, and now feel healthier with Whoop. Next up is Underdog Fantasy, the easiest and best way to play fantasy sports. Join a league and draft a team in minutes. They make it that easy, and yes, that simple. But if you'd like to spice things up, try their new Pick'em game. Just pick over or under on your favorite or least favorite player stats, and you can win up to 20 times your money in a single night. Underdog keeps it super simple with their easy-to-use website and mobile app. Just pick between two and five players, and you can take home some cold, hard cash. Go to underdogfantasy.com and use code POMP. That's P-O-M-P, POMP, and get your first deposit doubled by Underdog today. All right, let's get into this episode. Joe Pompliano runs POMP Investments. All views of Joe Pompliano and his guests are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of POMP Investments. You should not treat any opinion by Joe or his guests as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his personal opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, everyone. I'm joined today by Mike Tannenbaum, who I'm super excited to talk to. I've met Mike before, and I just want to get his thoughts on a lot of things going on in the NFL. He was a GM for the Jets for a long time. He's been around football for 30 plus years, I imagine, at this point, doing a bunch of different things within the NFL, different positions and everything like that, but also within media. And he's building his own media company now. So, Mike, how are you? Great to be with you, Joe. Appreciate you having me. Of course. Did you like the intro there? That was great. I'm just a fan of, of you and your work and what you and your brother are doing is really cool to, to watch and follow. Thanks, man. I appreciate that. So let's start with like how the hell you did all of this, right? I think people look at the GM role and it's like 
for a lot of younger people, especially I know for myself, it was always something that seemed really, really cool, right? You get to lead the direction of a franchise of an NFL team and kind of play like Madden per se. How did you even do this, right? Like what, what is the role? What is the path to becoming an NFL GM? Yeah. And I get asked that a lot and try to help others get to where they want to go. That's a big passion of mine. And, you know, for me, it was just about creating value. I was unbelievably lucky. I was at Tulane Law School when a once in a 75 year event happened and the owners got the form of cost certainty in the form of the salary cap and players got what they were looking for, which was free agency. And the first year and a half, I just wrote notes on how I thought to build a team and was able to get hired by the Cleveland Browns in 1995. Their head coach happened to be Bill Belichick and making $300 a week, driving people to the airport and helping them research contracts and was able to work my way up and become the youngest GM of the Jets a number of years ago. And what I tell people now, Joe, and, and you know this better than anybody, like the world's changing at light speed. And to the extent, if you wanted to work in sports today and you were looking at your foot in the door, I would be an expert on things like NIL or what does cryptocurrency really mean to, for players and player markets and branding yourself and what you know is Web 3.0 and, and the metaverse? Because the people that are currently working in the industry, like they're trying to keep their head above water, growing their practice. If you came in as a young person with an expertise in an emerging field, that is a way to give yourself really quickly differentiated value. Gotcha. And how have those early jobs changed if they have at all? I think people look at this and they they know that it takes some kind of, you're the low man on the totem pole, right? You have to do what you explained, which was you don't get paid a whole lot of money. You're maybe driving people around. You're, you're doing the film work. You're doing things that not necessarily everyone would want to do. Has that changed over the years? And is that different today? Or is it still kind of the same policy? I think the fundamental premise of like starting off as a glorified apprentice really hasn't changed, Joe. And, and to be candid, I kind of like that, you know, like for me, it kind of created a moat of people I thought that were smarter and more talented than I was. And I felt like I knew what I wanted to do. I was very passionate about it, Joe, and nothing was going to stop me. Once I got my foot in the door, I was going to outwork everybody. I think there's something like noble and fair and equitable about our society, which is if you want to do something great, you know, show me the best plumber in the country, show me the best teacher, show me the best broadcaster. They work their tails off. Like, There are no shortcuts. Like you have to be really, really passionate about you, what you want to do. Yeah. It's, it's something that I talk about a lot and and people that listen to multiple episodes of this now know, which is just like, there's this theory that you should be passionate about your work and that's what will make you successful. And that's kind of a cliche and it's certainly true to some degree, but I actually think that it's, it's the drive, right? It's the push. It's, it's everything that goes along with it that makes you successful. It's the ability to work harder than anyone else. And it just so happens to be that if you're super passionate about it, whatever you're doing, it could be football, it could be a plumber, it could be whatever it is, then that will make you work harder than everyone else, right? Because it doesn't feel like work. So in the same way that you do the media stuff today and you're starting the media company on the 33rd team and I do this and other people do separate things, like we're just passionate about this stuff, right? And I think that it bleeds into the work and, and, and it, it's a higher quality of work because of it. No, that, that's exactly right. It goes back to very something very simple. Choose a job you love, you never work a day in your life. Yeah, I totally agree. Is there anything that when you look back, you're like, I can't believe I had to do that or I did that or whatever? Because we've heard stories, right, of people that, you know, we're driving coaches around, we're doing different things. You just smiled. So I know that there's like something that you're thinking of. You can say whatever you want, but I'm curious to know if there was like, you know, things that you look back on now and you're just like, I can't believe we had to do that. Yeah, you know, I had graduated from law school, like a good law school, Tulane, and proudly I graduated with honors. And I get a job for $300 a week. I get to the Browns and there were some people there that 
you know, I ran their errands, you know, like got their car speakers changed or, you know, whatever it, it took. And I know my friends were making well into six figures coming out of law school. And I was like, you know what? Like, I don't care. I don't care. Like I got my foot in the door. And if I have to make one more airport run, who cares? Like I'm in the NFL, like I'll pay them, which basically you're just trying to keep your head above water. And again, Joe, like to me, Jason Witten said it great when Jason Witten retired, one of the best tight ends in the history of pro ball. He's like, you know, the answer was in the dirt every day. The answer was in the dirt. And I think that's true for all of us. Like in your career, the answer is in the dirt. It is hard. And like, yeah, I had to go pick up people at the airport and I was probably the most educated driver, one of the most educated drivers that ever was, but I didn't care. Like I had a really proud to have this really like overpriced law degree that I didn't know what the hell I was going to do with, but like it gave me some credibility in the nascent part of my career, which I was obviously very grateful for. Yeah. And it's this weird dynamic. I feel like where your friends, you're probably jealous of your friends because they're making six figures and, and they seem like they're living this great, fantastic life and really using their degree to their advantage. And then they're probably jealous of you because they're like, damn, this guy gets to hang out on the football field every day and talk to athletes and hang out with them and do all these things. So it's kind of this like weird dynamic where you think everyone has it better than you do, but ultimately like everyone's just on their own journey. Yeah. And I think, you know, Joe, that's, one of the things raising two teenagers right now in this day and age with like social media and all the mental health issues, it's fascinating you say that because no one posts, hey, I'm having a bad day. And to their credit, we've seen people like Dan Quinn, the defense coordinator of the Cowboys, Jay Glazer of Fox Sports. Adam Schefter in his book wrote about their challenges, their respective challenges with mental health. And it's okay not to be okay. But you're right. Like when you go through your career and your struggles, and you look at person A or B and you're like, oh my God, they got it so good. Like everyone's dealing with their own challenges. Like nobody has the perfect path. And I think to me, like the victory is in the struggle. Like, can you get up every day and get after it and get meaningfully better? I heard Matthew McConaughey speak the other day and he was all about that. He was all about like, hey, today we're just trying to get a little bit better than yesterday and let's do some good things along the way. It's so funny. My brothers and I say that to each other all the time. We literally just just say, let's get after it today. Like, let's just do it. Let's do it. And it's so it's so funny because it's such a small thing. It's like, who the hell cares, right? It's just words. But ultimately, it's just like a mindset of, of let's just go. You know, let's, let's make today better and let's push forward. So I get it. That's an interesting point, though. How much do you think social media has changed the NFL? Like, your job, I'm assuming, is probably a little more difficult in a social media age, right? There's There's athletes that are they can request trades through Twitter now. They can do all these different things. Has it changed the NFL? And that, that's kind of an open-ended question. I just want to hear your thoughts, really. Yeah, Joe, I'll answer that two different ways if I could. First of all, I think it's a blessing and a curse, the scrutiny that comes with running a team because the NFL is the most popular sport on the planet. We could all have an interesting debate about what's number two. But because of that, and I always used to say this, like when you're running a team, I ran the Jets, I ran the Dolphins. You're really the point guard of information. You're sitting between your head coach and your owner. You're making very complicated decisions. What you're trying to do is you're trying to make sure you're staying ahead of anything your owner may be reading and saying, hey, you may not agree with what we're doing, but here's why we're doing it. So they understand the rationale. I think from the other end of it, it's unhealthy to see players' passive aggressive behavior of changing an avatar or something, you know, who they're affiliated with. Like, we can have robust disagreement, and trust me, doing this for as long as I did, there are disagreements to be had. Let's do it in a venue that's professional. Let's do it in a way that's appropriate, and we can agree to disagree. And it's disappointing when you see players take that tack because 
you don't need to do that. You're only inflaming the situation. And collectively, on both sides of the table, Joe, we got to be problem solvers. Does that do anything? I've seen so many athletes at this point. It's becoming common to some degree where they change their profile pictures. They wipe their Instagram clean of the team and pictures of them in the uniforms. Like, does that even do anything? In my mind, that's kind of just like, ah, you're not really helping the situation and it's not positive. So like, why even do it? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Why are you doing it? It's not solving anything. You have a problem. You don't feel like something's appropriate or fair. Let's have a discussion. And by the way, we may agree to disagree, but I always prided myself, like in my office, I wanted to have a table. I try to make that table where it was more circular than square. So we are in this together. We are standing shoulder to shoulder. And to the extent I could, that was not just metaphorically, but actually physically have a round table. Cause I feel like that's where you can have discussion. That's where you can have debate. I always, when there was a player in my office, I never sat behind my desk. I always thought that sent the wrong message. Like, it's a we thing, and none of us have all the answers. How hard is it to cut a player? Do you get better at it over time? You know, I don't. And that was by far the hardest part of the job. And look, I've been on both ends of really difficult conversations. And I always said the same thing, and I still stand by the same words today. You know, of course, you want to thank people for their their work and services. And quite simply, like, look, we don't have a monopoly on the right answers. Cutting you may be the wrong decision. And if you want to continue to pursue your dream, you should. And hopefully one of the 31 other teams, for your sake, feels different in their evaluation of your performance than we do. And we're not saying you're not a great player. We're not saying that you can't play. But for us right now, like your services are not as good as 53 others. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I'm curious about the interaction between ownership. I'm assuming that this depends on a case-by-case basis and a team-by-team basis. But like, how much are owners typically involved in these decisions? Because we always hear these stories of like the owner demanded they wanted this person and the owner demanded they wanted this person. Is this really how it goes on some teams or is it just completely different? Yeah, I want the owners involved. They help impact the outcome. So uh, I've been just weirdly in my career part of like some massive, massive situations, training for Brett Favre, Laramie Tunsil being drafted despite having an ill-timed video come out about him training for Tim Tebow. What happened when the Laramie Tunsil video came out? Like, is that just a scramble? Because that was, if people remember correctly, that was like an hour or so before the draft, right? Yeah. So Joe, I was so incredibly proud of our process at the Dolphins. We had him as literally the best player on the board and the video comes out. He made a mistake. Good people do. And basically we had a great process of, we had fantastic reports on Laramie. He's a great person really close with his mom. He was a great teammate at Ole Miss and he had made a mistake and we took him and felt great about it. And we're like, we can't believe we're getting such a great player at this part of the draft. We got him at 13. He was number one on our board. So are you just holding your breath basically the whole time he's falling down the board? Yeah, exactly, Joe. And then what became like crazy and chaos to everybody else became a massive opportunity. But the lesson again was like, we were prepared. We had done the work. We were prepared. We were highly confident in the character of Laramie Tunsil. Everyone can see the greatness in his play, but we saw the greatness in his character just because we had done all the work heading into the draft on him. And how much time do you think collectively, the GM for sure, but the whole kind of front office spends on an NFL draft? Yeah, you know, Joe, that's something that people don't realize to be candid. Like, it's 11 months. So the 2023 draft process will start in May of this year. And what's great is when you turn in the card, everyone takes it part of it, the security department, the medical department, the coaching staff, the personnel staff, the team psychologist, the amount of information that you collect is just 
incredible. And if you have whatever, four or five, 600 reports, you're going to take seven players. All that other information goes into your database as the first report for them if you ever try to acquire that player. So it doesn't go for naught, but it's an incredible process that literally takes over 11 months a year. And how much of that is based on, I'm rapid firing questions here because I just like self-curious about this stuff. I, I feel like you don't usually get to ask some of these questions that's literally been in the situation. I'm just curious, is like, is the majority of this football related work that you guys are doing on these players or is most of it at this point, like, you know, understand them as an athlete, you understand how they would fit into your system. And then it's just like, get to know the person. Yeah. Great question. It's really both, you know, the, the expression I like to use, Joe, is the tape sets the floor, meaning the baseline character sets the floor. And the character sets the ceiling. And when you pour in the amount of resources you do through an NFL team, you want to make sure they're maximizing those resources. And the only way you're going to do it goes back to the very part of this interview, Joe, which is when you tear somebody in half, when you cut them in half, what's going to ooze out of them? And I want someone that's going to ooze a world-class competitor that has rare mental and physical toughness, that loves football, that would play for free, and is going to be the first one in and the last to leave and do everything they can to be the best version of themselves possible. Who's the hardest worker that you've ever encountered in the NFL? Probably Curtis Martin. He was a guy that if the facility was shut down for Memorial Day weekend and, you know, yes, the security people like, hey, who is here on a Sunday night? Hey, it was Curtis Martin. He was walking through his place. He was walking through pass protection schemes. There's thousands of players that were inspiring and worked hard but he just brought his preparation to a whole nother level. And what he did in season was remarkable. All he did was work on his body. He deferred everything for four months of the year, like had somebody else handle all his business and literally drove to the facility, worked on his body all day, every day, obviously knew his plays and responsibilities, but from stretching to hydrating to recovery, he did everything to put himself in the best position possible to be as successful as possible. That's amazing. That's probably why he had the career that he had, which is very cool to hear. I don't think most people understand too how hard the majority of these players work, right? Like how how long is the quarterback at the, what time do they get to the facility usually? Yeah, in season, they're in by seven. And depending on the time of the week or the coach's schedule, they're out at four or five. And then at night, a lot of them, they're doing something else. You know, Rex Ryan used to say something really interesting to the team. He always says to the team, hey guys, you're not the best athletes on the planet. He's like, the best athletes on the planet are walking the streets. You're the most talented athletes on the planet that also have the discipline to do everything you can to be great at what you do. And you should celebrate yourself and understand that like, it's an incredible accomplishment to be sitting in these seats. And the amount of work that you do to get here and stay here is something that most people, your competition just simply can't do. Were you with the Jets when Rex Ryan did the whole sandwich thing? <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, we hired Rex. We were on hard knocks and everything about Rex is true. A little funny, a little disorganized, <laughs> but we won a lot of games together, including four road playoff games. Yeah, that was an amazing time. He was certainly entertaining, that's for sure. I remember watching that and I just couldn't believe it and it was hysterical. That's great. My other question would be around like data. We always hear about data in sports now. Right. Like there's this approach. I know Moneyball was years ago and people always point back to that. But like even in the NFL, there's there's GMs that have, you know, went to Yale and Harvard and and people are always focused on the data now. And the coaches are expected to know about kind of the outcomes of games on specific plays and what gives them the best chance to win. How has this like transformed the way not only GMs operate, but just like how the NFL operates in general? Yeah. So one of the signs we have in our office show was in God we trust for everybody else, we need data. 
and basically the idea of that was we were going to be a process driven organization. And it's funny, like we talk about, you know, the birth of analytics, but the reality of it was like coach Parcells was a very data and analytics person. We just didn't call it that, but to this day, like a lot of teams will cite studies about coach and what the success is around each position. And that doesn't mean that's going to make your decision. I think what's an important distinguishment is it's going to guide the discussion. And what I mean by that is like, if you want to take a wide receiver that doesn't run a 40 under four five, that's okay. But what other special attribute do they have? You know, you look at guys like Wes Welker, some of the best receivers in our sport, they, they were great in change of direction, but not running straight line. So again, it's okay to take somebody that may be a little bit shorter or slower, but understand where their deficiency is and what do they have to overcome that deficiency? When you were GM, did you guys have like specific people on the stat that were in charge of the analytics intragame, like providing the coach with an analysis from a from a data standpoint about what the odds were if they did certain plays or whatnot? Or is that a new phenomenon? Yeah, no, we did that for a number of years and built out a whole department in Miami, uh, sports performance, data analytics. And again, like the best coaches in the world are not going to just hear what the analytics person says and then does it but you want to take that into account and then make sure that like that's part of your decision making but you know you just simply can't account for all the different things that could happen in terms of like the data may say one thing but because of the weather or of a key injury or you know whatever like i thought john harbaugh said something really interesting this year joe about yeah i decided to go for it because we didn't have any healthy corners and there was no way we could stop that team this game because we were out of healthy bodies. So I thought it was illustrative to hear somebody like John, who's very into the data, very into the analytics, go against it in what he was saying for a very compelling reason. Yeah, it's interesting because like obviously the data doesn't know about injuries. They don't know about other circumstances that are outside of the numbers. So I agree. Like we've seen certainly a bigger transition. Like coaches talk about it now after the game. You know what I mean? Like John Harbaugh is a perfect example. He talks about the data after the game and what the percentage chances were and, and the outcome was going to be if, if they did certain plays. So you can tell that he's obviously very in tune with it, but it doesn't necessarily just dictate his response A or B, depending on what the data says. He, he still applies very rigorous mental approach to it, too. And Joe, like what you're saying is very fundamental, which is that's what you want, because if not, like you wouldn't need coaches. You would just, you know, have a computer on the sideline and you're paying John for his expertise and his wisdom to take the information and say, like, Given this game and this situation, again, here's what's best for the Baltimore Ravens. Yeah. What did you look for? Uh, this is a loaded question, I'm sure, and probably provides the opportunity to give a really long-winded answer. But just simply, like, what were some of the things you looked for when you were selecting a quarterback, right? Because I think today, like, we, we all know the obvious things, right? You want arm strength, you want accuracy, you want these things. But in my mind, like, there's still a bunch of hits and misses. Maybe you have a good idea of who has a higher chance of succeeding versus other people. But I imagine there's a lot of ancillary things that are involved in the process, right? You want the offensive line to be good. You want them to have a running game. You want the coach and the coaching staff to be in place for an extended period of time. Like, Just talk me through how you think about the approach to actually selecting a quarterback. Yeah, that's a great question. And we could spend you know, a year trying to answer that. <laughs> but I would just say the very basic start with, like, I'm a big height, weight, speed guy. And here's why. If we were running an insurance company and one driver had 15 accidents and one had zero, it's likely, not definitely, but it's likely that the driver that had 15 accidents has a better chance of having a 16th accident before the other driver has their first. 
And when you look at it for years and years of data, certain quarterbacks of size, Joe, have a more likely chance of being successful than ones that don't. And that's why when you look at Drew Brees and Russell Wilson, you give them all the credit in the world, but those are exceptions. So when I start with a quarterback, I want the bigger guy if everything else is close. And that, along with mental toughness, if you can have a minimum size requirement and the ability to process information and have mental toughness, that's a really great place to start. Yeah, I love that. And one of the things I think about a lot is like the idea that players are going to continue to ascend. I assume in your mind, you guys have a pretty decent idea of who has, you know, an incredible out of this world work ethic when you're drafting people. And there's some thought process behind this player is going to get better, right? Like this player, if all things else is equal, they might get better than this other player just based on their work ethic alone. How much does that go into the decision process? Yep. And that's what we had touched about before. You know, like when we talk about the tape sets the floor, the character sets the ceiling, just in terms of how hard do they work and what kind of intangibles do they have? Jimmy Johnson, the longtime great coach of the Dolphins and the Cowboys, talked about he wanted guys with no parachutes. And what he meant by that, Joe, was they were going to make it in football or have abject poverty. Hmm. Wow. That's a powerful saying. I want to talk a little bit about the 33rd team, right? So you left the NFL. I don't know what year it was exactly, maybe 2015, 2016, somewhere around there. And you did media afterwards, so you've you've been working at ESPN, and I've seen you a bunch of different places now, but you've been doing that tour for a few years. And then you started the 33rd team. I'm familiar with it, but for people who are not, just talk me through what exactly the 33rd team is. Yeah, so basically it's a football think tank where really at its core is we try to pair students, mostly graduate students, with coaches and GMs between opportunities. And what we realized was, one, we could really help students get to where they want to go. And Joe, that's a big thrill and super important for me. We've proudly now placed 14 men and women in the NFL after doing internships with some of these coaches and GMs. And then the other thing we realized was all the lessons we're learning, let's share it with the world. And we put out all our content for free. Really proud of the track record we build of just putting out our free content. Yeah. And how much of this do you think is like a leg up? I imagine that the vision behind this is like, if you're a college graduate or someone who wants to get into the business side of sports, right, whether it's a GM role or something else, I imagine that this probably gives you a significant leg up on someone who doesn't have any experience, right? As you mentioned, I think you told me before we started this call, you guys did a call earlier this week where a, a former GM is literally in the room and, and there's people listening where they're interviewing a player like it would be at the combine, right? And that's something where you wouldn't ever get unless you're part of the 33rd club or something else equivalent. But then you go to a team and you already have this experience. You know what to expect. You know the questions that are going to be asked and you're not caught off guard. Talk me through just like how valuable you think that experience is versus someone who doesn't have it. Yeah, and that's exactly what we're trying to do. We're trying to provide experience for the people that want to work for a team and and then for the coaches that are between opportunities when you're not with a team and don't have those resources, Joe, we provide those resources by having really super smart and qualified students do a lot of the prep work. So it's a complete win-win. And then if you love football, like to be taken behind the curtains, like all our content, I shouldn't say all, most of our content is procured by people that have done the job. So again, if if you go to the site today, you could see like a real Indianapolis combine style interview, which people always want to know, Hey, what happens in Indy? Like, well, here's what happens in Indy. It was done by a coach that used to coach in the league and 
really wants to stay sharp. And that's what a lot of our content is. Again, the whole idea of it was like, let's help young men and women get to where they want to go and give them meaningful experience. Let's help coaches who want to keep coaching a support system. And we simply just kind of married those two groups of people. And correct me if I'm wrong, but this is somewhat of a, like a transition gig for coaches too, right? You could be in the room with one coach who who is out of the NFL one year and then is literally back as a head coach the next year. Yeah, yeah, like Dan Quinn and Peter King of NBC Sports did a feature on us early on. And Dan was like literally like coaching in the NFL in the Super Bowl against the Patriots. Unfortunately, gets let go. And one of our rock star students, a woman named Caroline Vendito, who's now thriving in the New York Jet Scouting Department, Peter King basically says, so Dan, let me get this straight. Like a year and a half ago, you're coaching against the Patriots in the Super Bowl. And now you're in a Zoom with Caroline Vendito from UMass. And it was like one of these like real poignant moments. Like, yeah, and it's working because Dan gets some really great support on projects that he wants to work on after Atlanta and before his next gig with the Cowboys. And Caroline gets world-class experience. And now she's a lot more marketable to pursue her dream, which is to be a scout. So that's like when we're at our best, where we could pair people like Dan and Caroline, and they both benefit from that interaction. Did you guys work with Mike McCarthy or no? Yeah. So Mike's a guy we have a lot of respect for. He actually did not do much with us, but we know a lot of people on his staff who have. He's someone I have a lot of respect for. Yeah, because I, I thought of him and he came to mind because I remember hearing that when he was off of coaching for a period of time, he was basically using it to learn the analytical side right? And educating yep. himself on some of the new things that are happening. So in my mind, like, yeah, it's funny and interesting to think about Dan Quinn in the Super Bowl and then talking to college students. But at the same time, like it's that, it's that saying or that theory that like you can learn something from everyone, right? And if you spend that time wisely as a coach or something else, then it could work out for you also. And Joe, like one of the things that we really, like one of our guiding principles is one of the keys to life is what you learn once you do it all. And we've had guys on our calls that have won or coached in the Super Bowl who are hanging on every word and writing down every note. It's the coolest thing to see. I can't tell you how much I learned. You know, like one of our guys is Wade Phillips, and we're watching tape a couple of weeks ago, and he's comparing Aiden Hutchinson to one of the guys he coached, the great DeMarcus Ware. And I'm like, this is gold. Like to hear a guy like Wade Phillips talk about the strengths and weaknesses of Aiden Hutchinson compared to DeMarcus Ware, there's maybe two or three people on the planet that could be more qualified than Coach Phillips talking about pass rushers, their role, how they're coached, how they'd be used in the game. It was just remarkable. And I'm just there like taking it all in. I'm like, look, I've been a GM, run teams, but just as a fan, like to hear Wade talk, it was like priceless to me. It's like a football PhD, but online and, and easily accessible. And the nice thing is like, and we have guys like Andy Hansen runs our weekly calls. He's done an incredible job. But like we want to make sure that when we all get together as a group, that the information is compelling, that Wade Phillips wants to come back because he wants to keep learning. And, you know, we'll talk about things like mental health, how to identify it, how to look for support. We have an orthopedic surgeon. We have a rules person. We've had former people from the league office who are kind of like rules people, historians, and we have an hour call. We always just say like our standard, Joe, is like at the end of our call, was that like a worthwhile use of everyone's time? Yeah, I love it. I love it. I feel like we could talk for hours, like not only on the football side, but on everything else around life and everything like that. But we'll have to do that another time. I'll let you go. But where can I send people to find out more about the 33rd team and everything that you guys are doing on the media side? Yeah. So it's the 33rd team.com. There's no paywall. We have hundreds of scouting reports for the draft coming up. We got 
analytics reports, everything there is completely free. 3013.com. My Twitter handle is at Real Tannenbaum. And, and Joe, thanks again. This has been terrific. I'm a huge fan of what you guys are doing and, and greatly appreciate you having me. Of course. You're a great follow on Twitter, by the way. So that's a, that's a good plug. Go find Mike on Twitter also. But we'll, we'll have to do this again, man. We'll have to do it again. And I appreciate you coming on. Okay. Thanks so much. All right, everyone. That's it for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, I appreciate you listening to The Joe Pomp Show. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Apple or Spotify so that you don't miss any episodes going forward. And if you are looking for additional content, check out my daily newsletter at readhuddleup.com or follow me on Twitter at Joe Pompliano. I hope you have a great day and I'll see you next time.